This is 365 Honest Questions About the Bible. I'm your long-suffering host, Dante Stack, and today we're on question 45. How small is our faith? As we begin, I want you to imagine that you're at a high school track and field meet. And you're specifically sitting down to watch the hurdles competition. You know, where people run and they jump over the hurdles. Your eyes are taken to this one snotty-nosed, red-headed freshman kid. He's scrawnier than all the other athletes. He doesn't have those muscular tendrils that strong sprinters and leapers have. He just looks like a band geek. But for whatever reason, he's out there ready to do the hurdles. And your eye's drawn to him because he's got one of these shirts. You've probably seen them. I've seen them quite often. They're citing a quote from Philippians 4.13, in which Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. (laughs) And incidentally, these shirts are really popular in active wear. You see a lot of people training with that specific Bible quote on their chest or legs or wherever. And you're examining this little snotty kid. And you're just thinking to yourself, really? You? You can do all things? We'll see. And sure enough, the gun goes off, and the kid starts in first place, and he's ahead of the pack. And you're like, whoa! He can do all things! The shirt is right! And he's leaping over them like a gazelle, but when he gets to the sixth hurdle, his back foot just tips the hurdle, and it falls down, and he smashes into the ground. Except he manages to get back up, because he's still in first place, and tripping over... One hurdle, he can survive that. Except he's still dragging the hurdle with his back leg that caught it. And he drags it all the way towards the next hurdle. And he tries to jump over that one, but he barely gets off the ground this time. And his knees and his whole body just collapses on the second hurdle. And he gets all tangled up in two hurdles now. And he's trying to extract himself from that. And he just looks like a sheep caught in barbed wire. And he's throwing his body all around. Meanwhile, all the other runners are just going right past him. Because at this point, he's just a complete annihilation. And sure enough, eventually, like in Cool Runnings, this kid, now with like all the hurdles wrapped around his waist, inches his way like a marine going through quicksand to the finish line and finishes dead last a good three, four minutes after everyone else. Sure, he's given a rousing applause by everyone who, you know, thinks this kid really pushed through and endured. And you're clapping along with everyone else, but as you're clapping, you're wondering, was God faithful to this kid? He couldn't do all things. He couldn't finish first in this little race. Is the shirt lying? Alright, our question this week is, how small is our faith? And that question is derived directly as a response to Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, which we'll get into in just a moment. First, I'd like to say there's a wonderful book club that I'm a part of. I meet with a few other guys every other week, and we've been reading through this book, Benefit of the Doubt, by Greg Boyd. Later, I'm going to quote the book, but I want to apologize to the men in my group because this question today is directly a butcherization of the conversations we've had over this book and some of these concepts. So, gents, I'm sorry I'm not articulating your ideas well. Well, I've stolen them, I've repackaged them in a cruddy package, and here it is. (laughs) So just like the snotty-nosed hurdler who derives a certain mystic faith out of 
the one extracted verse from Philippians 4.13. There's various other verses in the New Testament, various verses spoken by Jesus, where we tend to equate the idea that if only we had more faith, we could accomplish more. We could accomplish supernatural ends if we simply had better faith. So I want to read two passages about Jesus from the Gospels and base our conversation today off these two passages. Uh, the first comes from Mark chapter 11, verses 23 and 24. This is Jesus just a few days before he's crucified. In the middle of a speech, more or less, he says this. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you will receive it, and it will be yours. I gotta read that last verse again. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. This conjures up an idea like the Force in Star Wars. If only you have the correct mental image, the correct belief, the strength in belief, that there is a reality that's about to happen that isn't now happening, then that thing will appear, you know? All Luke has to do to raise his starfighter, sorry, I'm not a Star Wars guy, I don't know the names of the ships and stuff, whatever, his ship, his flying saucer ship <laughs> out of the mud on Yoda's planet, all he has to do is believe and have some sort of mystical connection with the Force, and then that thing's gonna come right out of the muck because of his mental telekinesis, his mental power. One way to interpret this, right here from Jesus, is that he's saying that. If only you believe, name it and claim it. If only you believe, it'll happen. That prayer will work. You want to move that mountain into that sea? If you do it with enough belief and do not doubt yourself, you're going to move that mountain into that sea. Bada bing, bada boom. We're all sorcerers now. Sorry, maybe I come off harsh right there as if I'm pointing the finger at Jesus and saying, your words are ridiculous. And I admit that is primarily a response out of my heart to what I think has been a majority response in the church from passages like that. And I'll explain, hopefully, better what I mean by that in a moment. But let's first go to the other passage that has a very similar message. This one's out of Matthew, and I'm going to read a larger section here to give us better context. This is Matthew chapter 17, starting in verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, that's Jesus and his disciples, a man came up to Jesus and, kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And Jesus replied to them, Because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing will be impossible for you. How small is our faith? Well, I don't want to answer that collectively, but if I'm looking at these passages and reacting to them and interpreting them according to my life, I have to say, how small is my faith? Apparently smaller than a mustard seed. I don't even have a mustard seed of faith? Mustard seeds are really small. And clearly Jesus' comparison here, Jesus' analogy or metaphor of a mustard seed is that you need very little faith, just the teeniest little amount. So the fact that I have prayed 
and mountains haven't been moved. I've prayed things, and they haven't come to fruition. I have had unanswered prayers, seemingly, in my life. That must mean, if I'm interpreting these passages literally, that my personal faith is less than a mustard seed, is so small, so insignificant, that it's not even considered a seed. But here's the thing, if we start interpreting these passages literally, there's only one conclusion we can make, I think. That conclusion being, none of us are faithful. None of us have faith of a mustard seed. To have faith of a mustard seed is actually an impossibility, because none of us have actually been able to move mountains. I'll give you three levels. First, my own personal experience. I've already explained. I haven't been able to move mountains. My prayers have sometimes fell on seemingly deaf ears. Second degree, your prayers have not all been answered. If you're a Christian and you've had some sort of prayer life, surely you can look to times where you have prayed and the thing you are asking for didn't happen. You prayed that this person would be healed and they died of cancer. You prayed that a certain marriage would stay together and they divorced. You prayed for your children that they would be safe and danger struck them. My mental image, when I hear Jesus saying these words here in Matthew, when he's talking about moving mountains from here to there, if you caught the end of the movie X-Men Days of Future Past, you know, as the superhero genre tends to do, there's always some sort of epilogue after the end credits. And it's by far the most interesting aspect of the whole movie is just this little 30-second snippet. And at first, you just see legions of people worshipping someone in the desert. And just by their garb, we can tell this is a long time ago. Turns out they're shouting out, En Sabah Nur. This crowd is on their hands and knees worshipping someone saying, En Sabah Nur. And then the camera swivels and we see it's this youngish looking kid and he's doing something with his hands. And so then it's like, okay, it's interesting that all these myriads of people out in the desert are worshipping this boy and then the camera swivels more pans up and we see that he's the one building the pyramids with his mind he's telekinetically moving the giant slabs into alignment to build the pyramids that seems to be the honest literal interpretation of jesus's words there's a kid this en sabah nur who can actually move mountains with his mind who can actually by prayer or some sort of manipulation do the things that jesus is talking about doing here But as far as I know, none of us in recorded history have that type of power, have that type of access to the Spirit of God. Even if you have been on one end of a miracle, you've prayed for something and something miraculous happened. Even if you claim you've levitated things, I bet that's not 100% true all the time. Because Jesus' words seem very exhaustive here. Nothing will be impossible for you. So everything, like the crazy boy in that old Twilight Zone episode where he can control everything with his mind, and he's like a little demon thing because he has no limits, we would be the same way as that little boy. Like, I want this shoe in my hand to turn into a hamburger. Name it, claim it, that shoe should turn into a hamburger, right? If we are honestly, literally interpreting Jesus' words, isn't that where we should go with this? So, so far, me nor you have faith of a mustard seed. Thirdly, Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the books of the New Testament, also, you would have to say, doesn't have faith of a mustard seed. There's a, a rather famous passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul's talking about this thorn in his flesh. And I quote from 2 Corinthians 12, 8. 
Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's a flowery way of saying, I've prayed for this thing, and God said, no. God said, it might as well be impossible to you. I am not taking away that thorn of your flesh. So if according to Jesus, all you have to do is have faith when you pray, and that thing will be granted to you, why does Paul get a no from God when he prays for a thorn to be removed from him? Similarly, Jesus himself, when he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays that he doesn't have to actually go through the process of being crucified. He prays that prayer, and God says no. I know Jesus had enough faith. He had far more than mustard seed faith. So the only logical takeaway here is that these passages can't be taken literally, right? And I know if you're a conservative Christian, I know how that sounds. I was raised in a conservative church where every day of the week I was told we interpret the Bible literally whenever and wherever we can. I mentioned earlier this book, Benefit of the Doubt, by Greg Boyd. Greg Boyd is a pastor in a church in Minneapolis, and the point of this book, which I found very refreshing, is that doubt itself doesn't have to be the boogeyman that we make it out to be. That there is room for healthy doubt in a healthy relationship with Jesus. There is room for doubt in the heart of the Christian. And more than that, the doubt can be very necessary for us. And that we need to learn to live with ambiguity within the context of our Christian faith. I'd like to quote from this book right now in talking about these passages. Greg Boyd writes, Another verse that is among those most frequently cited in support of the common misconception that faith is as strong as it is free of doubt is founded in Mark when Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Mark 11.24 If we interpret this literally, this instruction is simply impossible to obey. Think about it. We are instructed to believe we have already received what we ask for when we ask for it. But the very act of asking for something presupposes that we don't believe we've actually received it. If we truly believed we'd already received what we're asking for, we obviously wouldn't be asking for it. Anytime the literal interpretation of a passage involves self-contradiction, such as this, it suggests that the passage was not intended literally. Boyd goes on for a while to reinforce his argument with some examples, but I want to continue on a few pages later when he comes to what he thinks is the correct interpretation of Jesus' lines here, which is that Jesus is talking hyperbolically. Jesus is using the literary genre, the literary device of hyperbole. Boyd writes, As a first century Jewish teacher, Jesus made extensive use of hyperbole. And Mark chapter 11 verse 24 is a case in point. Jesus wasn't telling people to literally try to believe they'd receive what they were asking for. Nor was he guaranteeing that people always get what they ask for if they succeed at doing this. What he was doing, I will now argue, was emphatically stating an important point about how we are to exercise faith when we pray. Greg Boyd goes on to explain about how imagination plays a a part in fueling our prayer lives. Um, I'll be honest, I don't entirely understand what he's getting at with the imagination thing, but this idea that Jesus is utilizing hyperbole to make a more broad-based general point seems to be our only answer. Seems to be the only answer that is digestible for me. 
See, the thing is, when we read things literally, especially Christians, when Christians read scripture literally, we tend to always read it as a universal statement and therefore a promise. We create a legal paradigm. So when Jesus says, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. We naturally, especially in our Western culture, our Western heritage of like Greek thought, we see a legal if-then statement. If we have enough faith, then we will move mountains. Then we will get what we want all the time. And I know how that must sound. That must sound like I'm not being fair because there's so many qualifiers to that statement. Because there's other places in scripture that put qualifying elements into prayer. And the effectiveness of prayer is qualified by various externals, right? And I can understand why you would want to go there. But Jesus doesn't go there. Not in this sentence. Not in this place. He doesn't say, you will move mountains If that is God's will, if God wants you to move the mountains, you will move mountains. No, he just says, if you have enough faith and you want to move that mountain, you will move it. He doesn't put any qualifiers of if that's God's will, if it's sunny that day and your prayer can be caught by God's Wi-Fi. No, he doesn't do that. So we have here a situation where if we try to interpret it literally... We run into legal roadblocks all the time because Christ's words go against our whole experience in this world, in this realm. We are not the X-Men telekinetic pyramid builder. We're not that guy. We don't have those powers. So then maybe my faith actually is bigger than a mustard seed. (laughs) And I don't have to self-flagellate myself all the time because I feel like I am somehow not good enough to receive an answer to prayer or I'm not faithful enough for my prayers to be effective or to be heard by God. See, I appreciate Greg Boyd's point because he's trying to deconstruct this sense that we say so often in the Christian community, it's by grace you have been saved, but then we still manage to create a system and still manage to create this hierarchy of if you do this, then God will bless you. We constantly seem to keep wanting to create that system. And I think this is a verse. These are places where we're still doing that. And then an honest person has to face the facts and be like, man, my faith is so awful. I have no faith, apparently, because I can't move these mountains. Because I wanted to drive from Kansas to California, but my car couldn't handle going over the Rockies. So I asked God and I prayed and I said, Lord, let me just move those mountains into the Pacific Ocean for a little while so I can have a straight ride. And then I'll move those mountains back once I'm in California. I prayed that and it didn't happen. So I don't even have a mustard seeds faith. Man, I suck. I suck. I am the worst of all people, aren't I? Blah. No. <laughs> This idea of hyperbole in the literary genre of Jesus' words is refreshing because it gives us an out clause. It gives us escape from that. However, it creates new problems, right? If Jesus is employing hyperbole here, where else is he implying hyperbole? Also, if it's just hyperbole, then what is actually the point he's trying to make? What is he actually trying to get us to? We could say he's trying to get us to have more faith, but I no longer know how to evaluate my faith if my faith isn't attached to effective prayer. Does that make sense? I don't know if that makes sense. Back to this Mark passage one more time. I want to read verse 23. It's Mark eleven twenty-three. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. 
So that's the part that Greg Boyd in his book Benefit of the Doubt was saying is self-contradictory because you can't believe in something that's not actually in existence yet. You can't force yourself to believe a currently untrue thing. Next week, we want to ask if faith isn't about this idea of certainty, this idea of believing something that isn't yet in reality. What is faith? What is Jesus actually trying to get at here when he says, but do not doubt in your heart, but believe that what he says will come to pass will be done for him. How how do I not doubt? How do I actually have faith? What is faith? If it's not, you know, this conviction that I have to somehow will myself to have. We'll take a look at that next week. But for now, hopefully I've given you enough to chew on. This is Dante Stack, signing out. Peace be the journey.